Hey, everybody. My name is Justin Murphy, and this is the Other Life Podcast, where I talk with indie creators, digital hustlers, and unique internet personalities about how to escape from institutional conformity and succeed on the internet instead. To learn more about the Other Life Project, go to otherlife.co. That's otherlife.co. And if you like what I'm doing, I just have one quick favor to ask. Please go and just leave a review in iTunes. It really helps others find the show, and I'd really appreciate it. Thank you so much, and a big shout out, especially to my patrons. I could not do this without you all. So thanks. And now, on to the show. Second while the YouTube gets booted up. All right, there we go. I think we are now live. So we are going to, in this session, we're going to be talking all about Carl Jung. I've invited John David Ebert to speak with me today uh, for the primary reason that John is going to be doing a serious feature-length eight-week course all about Carl Jung within my larger course catalog that I've been building with myself and other excellent thinkers and, and lecturers. So this is something like the fifth course or maybe even more than that that I've done now. So I've learned a lot about how to organize courses, what makes them work well, what makes them not work well. And I'm really pleased to say that I have a pretty good system, I think, that people genuinely really like. And for that reason, I've decided I'm going to really focus on doing more and more courses with all of the greatest minds that I can find out on the internet who are truly erudite and sophisticated thinkers, writers, and lecturers, but who are currently working outside of institutions, because to me, that's where all of the real intellectual action is. So that's my mission. That's what I'm doing with my courses. And I'm very pleased to let you know that uh, John David Ebert here with me today is going to be doing a course on Jung. That's going to be starting in February. Uh, so that this is actually the first we're really announcing it. So you're kind of the first to hear it. And if you want to get your hands on the reading list, you all you have to do is go to otherlife.co slash Jung. That's spelled J-U-N-G. And uh, go ahead and just drop your email and I'll be sending you updates. I'll send you a reading list uh, for the course, which you can also use for your own purposes if you want. And maybe you don't want, need an eight-week course of serious intensive discussion with, with people like me and John, but uh, you just want to read Jung on your own. I think you could still benefit from the reading list. So uh, if you're interested in Jung, whether you want to take our course or not, just go ahead and drop your email at otherlife.co slash Jung. That's J-U-N-G. And uh, we'll send you updates on, on the course as, as it unfolds. It'll be launching in February. So uh, that's enough by way of introduction. Now I, what I want to do is I want to uh, kick off a, a, a hopefully a very deep dive onto what is most interesting and compelling about Carl Jung and the reason why John is so interested in Jung, why John has been studying Jung for years and years. Well, I want to really kind of pick his brain and hear in his own terms what is most interesting and important about Jung. Uh, both for my own interests, because I'm not, I'm, I'm, I'm no Jung scholar whatsoever. I've only read a little bit of Jung, uh, so I'm quite interested in pers- in it personally. But I know there's a ton of interest in Jung right now, uh, in large part popularized by Jordan Peterson. I think really put Jung on the map for a lot of people. So I'm just super eager to, to learn more about Jung uh, from John, and I'm sure you all are too. So just going to jump into that. I think John doesn't even need much of an introduction. John is an absolute beast. He's been making uh, really impressive and sophisticated lecture videos on his YouTube channel for years. He's published. Um, 26 books, I think more than 26 books by now. And those are a- across the spectrum of traditionally published with big traditional presses down to self-published. And he's, he's one of the most independent and active and erudite uh, independent thinkers that I know of. And that's why I had him on. So I think that's enough by way of introduction for, for John. And I think we should just jump right into it. First of all, John, I want to thank you for coming out with me today. I really appreciate that. 
Thank you for having me, Justin. It's always a pleasure to be here with you. Absolutely. I'm, I'm excited. Let's let's get right into this. So you've agreed to do a course in my course catalog on Jung. Tell us if you wouldn't mind, just kind of off the top of your head, what what draws you to Jung so much? What what do you find most exciting, just in a general conversational way? What what do you find most exciting about Jung that maybe other people don't understand? Well, he's my favorite uh, psychoanalyst of all time. Uh, I would put him in the number one slot. Uh, and then maybe Freud second and Lacan third, something like that. But uh, Jung appeals to me far more than those others do because Jung uh, took spirituality seriously, whereas uh, Freud really didn't. And I don't think Lacan did either. And uh, spirituality has been my main thing all along, the main thread that has woven my career from the beginning. And Jung was one of the first people that I read uh, in college as I was coming just out of college, like my last year, my senior year. I had discovered Oswald Spengler and Joseph Campbell. Um, and uh, then I knew I had to read Carl Jung uh, because a lot of Joseph Campbell's work uh, comes out of a synthesis of Oswald Spengler for his historical archetypes and Jung for the psychological archetypes. And so the thing about Jung is that he figured out that uh, there was a big problem in mythological studies going down through the 19th century of how to account for the similarities uh, in myths all over the globe. The virgin birth, for instance, is an archetype that's found everywhere. You can find it in every single society. How did that happen? Um, and these were called by Adolf Bastian, a German anthropologist in the 19th century. These were called uh, elementary ideas, as opposed to ethnic ideas, which are the local inflections of the elementary ideas. The elementary ideas, of course, become Jungian archetypes. And um, Jung figured out that there's this thing in us, the collective unconscious, that just as the human body is the same structurally, no matter what race you're talking about across the planet, so too the human psyche is structured in the same way, more or less, uh, at least the basal levels of it, where these archetypes uh, come out of the collective unconscious and they account for, uh, at least on this view, they account for uh, a lot of the similarities, not all of them. Um, I think Joseph Campbell supplemented Young by emphasizing the fact, well, actually, too, uh, peoples have been in contact quite a bit, quite more maybe than we suspect, and they've been trading ideas, you know, on the physical plane, on the external world, as well as these archetypes that come up. But Young discovered the archetypes through dreams, because there's no other way to account for them. If they're, if they're appearing as deep structures in dreams, uh, then how did they get in there? If this person never knew anything uh, about a snake uh, that bites a man's phallus and then suddenly transforms him into something else. I mean, th these are all mythological ideas that happen in the dreams of his ordinary patients, people who were not erudite, people who, you know, didn't know anything about myth. So clearly um, the, the myth is, is deep. It's, it's not something that comes from the head. It's something that comes out of the body and is expressed through the psyche. So okay. uh, that's what okay. appeals to me about Awesome. Yeah, that's super fascinating. There's so much there. Now, when you uh, designed the course, because we've been talking and uh, you've been hard at work designing a logical sequence, uh, the way that you see the main ideas of Carl Jung uh, in, 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 in terms of a course outline. So your first lecture, as you, as you planned it for the course that will be launching in February, is about the Freud-Jung debate. So I'm yeah. curious if you could tell us a little bit more about what's really most important about that Freud-Jung debate that people might not understand. Uh, well, of course, there's David Cronenberg's film, A Dangerous Method, which, uh, you know, if you want just a quick rough sketch of what happened, you can watch that film. But the film 
leaves out quite a few important details, some scandalous ones uh, that uh, for some reason, it's based on a, a stage play by Christopher Hampton called The Talking Cure. Um, and uh, some, some stuff has been left out. All right, tell uh, us tell, tell us the, the juicy well, details. Well, um, so Jung met Freud through the mail by sending him uh, a copy of one of his uh, collections of diagnostic association experiments. Jung had just invented the word association test where you write down a series of trigger words and you say them to the person. And based on the person's reaction time, you can find out where the complex, uh, if, if you know, you say father and they say mother, you know, really quickly. Okay, no complex there. You go down the list until you hit a word where the person pauses for a second and seems to search for a response. Ah, it's like casting an X-ray into the psyche, actually. There's a complex. And so he sent Freud uh, some of his work on the word association experiment uh, in 19... 19- 06 and uh, in the springtime of 1906, Freud received it. He was very enthusiastic about it. And then they started an exchange of letters back and forth, sending each other their texts that they were working on their researches through 1906. And then in 1907, uh, rolled around March of 1907, uh, the Youngs went to visit the Freuds. Um, So Young and his wife, Emma, uh, go to visit Freud and his wife. Um, and they, it's one o'clock in the afternoon. He goes in there into the study and they're in there for 13 hours talking nonstop. But one thing that Young did realize after a while, I think there was another visit after this where it sank in, was that uh, Freud's wife's sister was living with them. And he found out, he, fi- he figured it out. Uh, you're not going to hide something like this from Young. He figured out that Freud was sleeping with the, his wife's sister. This is not in the movie at all. The Freud was sleeping with his wife's sister mm. and he realized that Freud's wife knew absolutely nothing about his work, not a thing. Whereas the sister knew everything. The sister could sit and talk about, oh yeah, he's doing this and working on that. He also noticed a curious detail that in order to get back into the back room, you had to walk through into Freud's bedroom. You had to walk through the sister's bedroom first to get to the back bedroom of Freud and his wife. You know, that was a little odd. Um, so he clearly knew uh, about this menage a trois that was going on that Freud didn't want him to know about, and he could never get Freud to admit to it. And finally, uh, in the scene in the movie where you see them, they've been invited to Clark University in 1909 to give a talk uh, there, um, and they're on the boat psychoanalyzing each other's dreams as they go across the Atlantic. And uh, at one point, there comes a dream where Young realizes uh, it's talking, it's a reference to, you know, the situation and Freud is like, or Jung says to him, so what does this, what does this remind you of? And, uh, Freud says, well, I can't risk my authority on that. So, I mean, you'll just have to take my word for it. And at that point, it was kind of a turning point in their relationship because at that point, Jung realized he was never going to fess up. He was never going to admit to it. And he was never going to trust Jung, whom he was regarding as his disciple, who would be next in line to carry on psychoanalysis. He was never going to trust him with this information. And uh, Jung took that as a, as a personal slight. He doesn't trust me. So Right. So the idea is the expectation was that they were having a truly frank kind of psychoanalytic uh, searching process together. And uh, Jung saw Freud as kind of betraying that, ha- having his own kind of repression, in other words. Yes, exactly right. Um, I'm the master. You are the pupil. You know, what I do and say goes and is final and you'll just have to go along with the ride. Young was far too independent a thinker uh, to ever, you know, cast himself in the role of a mere disciple 
who's going to simply uh, pass on the dogma of his teacher, like a postal clerk, you know, he, he wasn't going to do that. Okay. Interesting. And, and what do you think is most interesting or important about that? Like, it's kind of interesting that you put that as the initial uh, lecture in the, in the course. So I'm just curious, how do you see that as connecting to his bigger because, ideas and why is that important for people? Why it's important is because out of that friction, Jung found himself um, and began in that same year, actually 1909, to start studying mythology. Um, that's when he started taking mythology seriously and studying it. He's very excited about it. And then uh, he's writing to Freud about it. Hey, I've discovered mythology, all this great stuff. And Freud's like, well, that's fine. It's all well and good, but don't stay too long down in the tropics there. You have to come back to the real world at some point. Freud was threatened by anything that had to do with mythology, religion, or the archetypes. And as far as Jung was concerned, for Freud, the sexual theory uh, somehow got tangled in his psyche with the numinous, what's what's called the numinous, which means the, the uh, radiant spiritual energy. Uh, it's almost as though uh, in the semiotic vacancy left by the absence of Freud's Jewish god, Yahweh, he puts the sex theory in place, and that becomes almost a, a divinity for him. And it's not to be trifled with. It's the only explanation there is, and Jung just got absolutely sick of hearing this one-sided theory about Repression. Everything is repressed sexuality. Everything we do, every neurosis, every psychosis comes back to repressed sexuality. And Jung knew very well that there are other motivations in the human psyche than just sexuality, such as the power drive, which uh, one of Freud's circle, Alfred Adler, had been writing about, that the power drive is also very important. Uh, there's the sex drive, but there's the power drive. And sometimes they go back and forth. Sometimes they conflict. Um, Freud just would not you know, accede to that. Um, and Jung just got sick of it. And so as he's developing his mythological studies, uh, Freud becomes clearly threatened by it and then decides he's going to write a book about mythology, which becomes totem and taboo. And he says, he writes a letter to Jung and says, I'm going to write a book now on religion and myth, uh, but don't worry, we won't collide because my book will go deeper than yours. <laughs> I see. I so, see. Okay. So, fascinating. Uh, fascinating. And so, you're on the way out by that point. Gotcha. Okay. Fascinating. That's great context. So the second lecture, as you sketched it out for the course, is a kind of general introduction to Jung's model of the psyche. And you just alluded to some of the some of the key aspects of that. Uh, but what are, in your view, the primary aspects or dimensions of Jung's model of the psyche? Could you just give us a sketch of that? Sure. Um, so he inherits the idea of the ego. From With Freud, you have the classic three terms of the ego uh, and the id, just the pleasure principle and the superior ego that emerges between the pressure, almost a geologic pressure between them. The id wants all this, but the ego is the reality function, and the superego is the social do's and don'ts uh, that the ego has to tame the id. Uh, and so, as Freud says, where id was, there ego shall be. Um, and the other aspect of Freud's model that's important to take into account is that his concept of the unconscious is purely biographical. The unconscious is empirical for Freud. It's made up out of repressed traumatic situations that you've experienced in your lifetime growing up. So it's purely biographical. It's sort of an appendage of the psyche, as it were, that contains all these neuroses, psychoses, and so forth. So Jung essentially takes this model. He keeps the idea of the ego, um, but he expands the unconscious, as we have just seen, from a biographical unconscious to a biological unconscious. He accepts the biographical unconscious, yes, there are personal things that have happened to me that have formed traumas, but there's also beneath and below that, this collective unconscious, which is shared by the entire human species. 
um, that is biological. So Freud's is biographical, his is biological. And then the other aspect is that out of this conflict, and this is why it's important to understand when Jung comes up with the theory of psychological types, it came out of his encounter with Freud. Uh, by 1912, they're quits. By 1913, the relationship is totally dead, done, and gone. And then what happens is that uh, Jung goes into a period of isolation. He stops writing and he starts thinking. And this is the period that scholars call the confrontation with the unconscious. He's having all these weird dreams. And the theory that comes out of this is the theory that has later been popularized by things like the Myers-Briggs uh, and so forth of psychological types. And basically he says there are introverts and there are extroverts. Uh, extroverts are driven uh, by desire for the external object. Introverts are more driven by power. They're, they're, they're more interested in how am I doing? Uh, am I on top? Uh, am I the, the, the guy who's getting it done? Um, so the introvert extrovert thing is, was a way of his reconciling the difference between Freud and Adler. Freud with the, the sexual complex and Adler with the power drive. So you got introverts and extroverts, but then he says that uh, the, psyche, the psyche is structured with four different functions. And they're opposed to each other. They create, in the East, is called a mandala, which is a term that Jung imports for any quadrated uh, circle with, or square that's quadrated. And he says, uh, in the psyche, you have thinking as opposed to feeling and sensation is opposed to intuition. These are the four functions of the human psyche. And either you will get an extroverted version of one of those four that will be favored or an introverted version of one of those four that will be the favored function. For example, for instance, you can get an extroverted thinking type, uh, which he thinks Freud was. And if that's the case, then feeling will be down in the unconscious. So the part that doesn't come up is the part that's down in the unconscious and then can cause you trouble. Um, or you could be, let's say, an introverted intuitive type, and you might be a mystic in that case. Uh, if intuition is primary, then sensation is going to be unconscious, which is the body and its relation to the physical world. This is why you very often have mystics who have a very poor relationship with the physical world. So that becomes his model of the psyche. Uh, and then uh, we'll discuss that. We'll, we'll discuss how that model works and how uh, personality typology uh, comes out of his conflict with Freud. That's why it's important to understand the clash with Freud led to him figuring out his major ideas. Oh, I can't hear you. Yep. Okay. So got it. That That's, that's absolutely fascinating. So great. Now, I mean, we might as well just keep going down kind of the, the main ideas in the course since you've already developed the, the course outline. Uh, what is the individuation process? The individuation process is Jung's term for uh, the process that happens over the course of a lifetime, whereby each individual becomes uh, what he or she is. And it's a process that's normally worked out through dreams and paying attention to dreams because your dreams, um, we have a tendency to think dreams are just, you know, they're the residua of, of, you know, psychological garbage that's just left over from the day's events or from my traumatic childhood. But Jung says, no, actually, if you write your dreams down, and I've done this over a long period of time, you'll start to see that there's a story. That there's a story in there that your unconscious is dialoguing with your conscious mind. Um, and there's a story in there. You're meant to be and do certain things. There's a reason why, let's say, you're a, a, an introverted thinking type, as Jung was. That's your boat. That's what you're riding in. So the individuation process is the process of becoming the unique being that you are over time in dialogue with your unconscious. 
whether it's through dreams, whether it's through active imagination uh, or what have you. There, uh, the imagination for young is key. It's, it's a central thing uh, for any, if people who are uncreative still have dreams and the dreams are still you know, talking to you. Uh, so that's the individuation process. And that, that's his term for the whole psychoanalytic uh, or what he calls analytical psychology is the term. Uh, Freud is psychoanalyst analysis. And his, he changed the term so he wasn't going to copy analytical psychology as Jungian, but that's it. Okay, excellent. You know, I'm noticing a lot, there are a lot of echoes later on in Deleuze and Gattari, right? I, I'm, you're familiar with them. I know I'm much more familiar with them than Jung. And uh, they're very, they're quite favorable towards Jung uh, and, and cite him a little bit. But you can, you can see that a lot of echoes because they're very interested in A, what you said before about the uh, kind of the critique of the Oedipal complex, the critique of this obsession with lack, they're much more interested in the unconscious as a, as a productive function rather than this repressive lacking function. And they're also very interested in this depersonalization uh, tendency that you see in, in Jung to say, it's not about the individual ego. It's about these deeper seated uh, kind of mythological uh, art, archetypal structures that transcend races and genders and, and individuals. Yeah. Do you, do you see that? I do see that. I, I, I do see Anti-Oedipus as a book that it could have been called Anti-Lacan. Um, they're, they're after Lacan in that book. They're, 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 it's a critique of Lacan and uh, seeing him as, as too narrow. But you're right about this idea where they see a much broader picture that there are these other sort of metaphysical motivations that are going on. Uh, and Deleuze at least did like Jung. And I think Deleuze's book that's closest to Jung's world is his book on uh, masochism. Um, where he talks about uh, um, the theories of J.J. Bakufen, who uh, was teaching at the University of Basel in the middle of the 19th century when Jung was uh, very, was young. <laughs> he was, you know, he was a very young guy, but he says, I have memories of Bakufen walking around the streets. I remember seeing him. Uh, the dude was like a legend. And he was the guy who came up with the theory of mother right um, in uh, the 1860s. He publishes his masterpiece, Mother, it's just called Mother Right in which he figured out that before all the patriarchal cultures that we've seen around the world, he figured out through linguistics and etymology and inference that there was a deeper stratum beneath that, whereby people used to take mother's life, not the father's life. Um, and that there used to be these cults of goddess worship uh, where the mother was the, the primary thing. And what we see in, let's say, the myths that we've inherited from Greece, Hesiod's Theogony is a classic example of this, in which um, the rise of Zeus and his war against the Gaian Titans, all those Gaian Titans are sort of monsters like Typhon with serpent's legs, but they weren't monsters in the, in the, before the Indo-Aryans got there, they weren't monsters. These were the primary deities of Gaia, of the great goddess. But now the incoming wave of Indo-Aryans comes in and overturns that whole order. And it's no longer mother right now, it's father right. And um, so, Deleuze in his book on masochism talks about, um, he, he makes reference, quite a few references to Bakufen as the theoretician who should be con connected with masochism, which is a wholly different thing than sadism. We use the terms together as sadomasochism, and Deleuze is like, they, they're two totally different complexes. They shouldn't be together. Sadism is the realm of the father, the cruel father. Masochism is what happens, and this is in the, the novel, Venus in Furs, written by Leopold von Zachermazok, from whence we get the name. He says, masochism is actually a contract that is made with the woman to exile the father. 
The father is exiled from the relationship between uh, the man who wants masochism. He, he is in the masochistic role, and the woman is the one inflicting cruelty on him. And it's in an alliance to drive out the name of the father, to use Lacan's term. So that book actually comes the closest to Young's world. I can see Deleuze very comfortable there with Young. Okay, and interesting. So, so you're you're bringing up here certain differences between men and women, and I noticed that that's one of the big lectures on your course outline. You have a whole week on men and women in Jung, and I think Jung has some provocative theories there. So maybe you could unpack what you just said with a, a little bit of a step back on what, what is Jung's larger take on the difference between men and women and, and why does that matter? Um, here's the chauvinist comment that I know people aren't going to like, uh, but he, he repeats it quite a bit where he says that with regard to those types and the four different functions, uh, men are usually have the differentiated function is thinking for men, which makes feeling um, in the unconscious and therefore inferior an inferior feeling is sentimentality. You get the man who expresses these uh, kitschy, sentimental opinions. That's because his feeling function is undeveloped. It's, it's, re it's repressed. It's in the unconscious. Whereas with women, women tend to have the feeling function differentiated and the thinking function is weaker because it's buried in the psyche. And so we get opinions. We get irrational opinions from women. That's inferior thinking, just as sentimentality is inferior feeling in men. But now this becomes tangled up with the archetypes. And so the first couple of archetypes that have to be taken into account, which are in many ways the most important, is the fact that the man has a female part of his psyche that's called the anima. And the anima is part of the collective unconscious, the mysterious woman that the dragon is guarding, that the hero has to save. These are all anima projections. The woman, on the other hand, has what's called the masculine part of her psyche is called the animus. Uh, the animus is always the, the, the heroic man, you know, with the sword. And so in any given relationship between men and women, let's say in a basic uh, traditional couple, um, uh, there's always another couple. <laughs> there's this anima and animus couple that dogs uh, like shadow figures, the relationship that's going on consciously between the man and the woman and a lot of times the anima will possess the man's psyche. Uh, and if it isn't worked out, uh, the anima can slowly take possession of a man's psyche to the point where it even becomes uh, like him spouting uh, silly opinions and nonsense. Same thing with the woman. The woman can also, uh, if it isn't worked out, suffer from an animus possession. And when these archetypes slowly encroach and take over the psyche, Jung says what they do is they build a web of illusions between us as individuals in the outer world, and we become further and further removed from reality, uh, and can even wind up in isolation um, if these things aren't worked out. Uh, a man sees a beautiful woman, he's making an anima projection on her. It's a projection of his anima, and it has to be the right woman. It has to suit his particular characteristics of his anima. Um, that's what we say, we say, oh, she's not my type. In other words, she doesn't fit your anima image. Uh, same thing with women. Although with women, it tends to, the animus tends to be a jury, a, a collection of men. It's it's multiple. Um, so there's it's it's not quite so specific as it is for a man. And so these projections are the hooks that hook the sexes together. The the anima projection on the woman, the animus projection on the man, 
And then it becomes uh, a relationship. Now you've got the challenge of your individuation process working itself out through the the alchemical process of, of, of the male-female relationship, which is difficult for a reason because there's another couple involved. Um, okay, that's really, really interesting. I mean, do you see that kind of playing out today in contemporary gender relations and contemporary dating culture? And I mean, what, what what's 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 the takeaway for people today that are kind of navigating this minefield of, of gender relations? I, all I can say about that is from my own experiences in relationships that it is a hundred percent the way <laughs> I think it's correct. Actually. I, I think it's, it's true. We make these so protections it, on each other. Is, is, yeah, is there a positive upshot though? Like what is the lesson? What, 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 what do we take from Jung's analysis of gender that can maybe help us navigate our own relationships better? Just to understand and be aware that what, you're doing is making projections. And the thing about, let's say a man making uh, projections on a woman is that uh, this can go on and on where he's with a woman and then doesn't work out another woman and doesn't work out another woman and it doesn't work out. And it can just go on and on and on unless this relationship with the anima is worked out and stabilizes. Um, so it, it's very important to take into account the the fact that you are making certain projections when you're getting involved with someone. And if those projections, you know, they, they get old and they wear out and now you're stuck, not with this person who is a projection of your anima, but with a fact, this person uh, has her, let's say uh, own uniquenesses that don't fit the anima. Well, now you have to turn passion into compassion now. So it has to be uh, worked out in a different way. So it's just good. I think to be aware of what's going on in these uh, male female in this game, this that we play, the male female game, and yeah. I realize, um, <clears throat> a lot, you know, this is pre World War II thinking, and, and a lot of this is regarded as chauvinist nowadays. And I realize that in the situation that we're in now with hyper modernity, a lot of these archetypes are being melted down. We have all this gender fluidity, but I do st- still think, nonetheless, that that there's quite a bit of validity here. Do you want to say a brief word, John, about what you mean by hypermodernity? People might not know. What, what is that exactly to you? Hypermodernity uh, is the epoch that uh, I see coming in uh, with the internet about 1995 when the National Science Foundation makes it public and turns it over. And then it um, once it comes in, it starts melting down uh, postmodern culture, the technology of which was primarily analog. And so we see all the analog technologies disappearing along with the world interior of the shopping mall that basically housed, uh, you know, your favorite record stores, your favorite bookstores, tape cassettes, uh, what have you. It melted all of that down and it has created what uh, the theoretician Zygmunt Bauman calls liquid modernity. Everything is in a state of constant liquefaction. And so under the conditions of hypermodernity, we're all plugged in to this global internet, which deworlds us as we project our avatars into cyberspace and now we have these deworlded avatars that have been uh, uprooted from locality, uprooted from tradition, uh, and they're this sort of this realm of uh, what uh, Slavoj Žižek, the title of his book, "The Plague of Fantasies." That's sort of what it's the plague of phantoms now, the plague of avatars that we're dealing with. So it's a totally different world, and I think also another crucial difference with hypermodernity uh, versus postmodernity is that uh, with hypermodernity big narratives are making a comeback. Uh, people are interested in, the, in big narratives that Leotard had already announced were anathema. Uh, it's, we can't have grand meta-narratives anymore because that's what led us into World War II. 
Um, I don't think that's the case. <laughs> I've always been a fan of grand meta narratives. I think they're a lot of fun. Uh, and that's how I've learned so much is from studying them. And uh, I think that's another crucial structural difference between the two epochs is that um, especially individuals of your generation, Justin, uh, who are interested in meaning. Uh, you can't, the psyche is not made to live in a world of pure nihilism where there is no meaning. That just leads to violence, spree killers, um, crazy mobs. Uh, and Jung would probably agree, would I know, as a matter of fact, agree with that, that um, if the psyche doesn't, is, isn't anchored in something that's transcendent and rooted uh, in a tradition with a past, uh, you're going to have trouble. <laughs> you're going to have social chaos. So. Yeah, that makes a ton of sense. I mean, as someone who doesn't even uh, read Jung very much and is not very familiar with his works, just listening to you, it's easy to see really, really interesting applications. So for instance, listening to you talk about projection and, and the animus and the role of gender relations or in the context of gender relations, it's like in the contemporary digital age, a guy can go on Tinder and just basically go through like fantasy after fantasy after fantasy. It's like every candidate to date or to hook up with. You can project whatever fantasy you, you want on them. One one girl to the next, sleep with them, discard them, and vice versa to some degree. Uh, went, women towards men as well. I'm just as guilty of this, by the way, as everyone else. So <laughs> I'm oh, not sure. separating myself out. Oh no, and I'm I'm definitely not acting as if I'm above any of it. It's, but this is the condition of hypermodernity. You're saying essentially, it's like digital technology allows the kind of unleashing of our fantasies and projections in this way that has become completely unhinged. And it's like there's no final reckoning with the reality in a way. So it's like when you get yeah. in the traditional kind of uh, marriage relationship, let's say, you know, you get married. Uh, and of course, in the early days, there's a lot of romance and sex and and attraction and the projection onto the other of all of your you know, greatest fantasies uh, is really good actually for making things exciting and bringing people together and creating that bond and reproducing you know, uh, human life afterwards. Uh, but then, as you said before, that passion always converts into a kind of compassion because you both get old and wrinkly and, and the passion dies out. But what remains is the bond and the fact that you have children now or you have, this, um, you have these, these real structures in the real that keep you kind of bonded to each other it, 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 it's a kind of forcing function that gives your life meaning and allows things to carry on and carry out in a, in a way that actually maps onto our evolved psyche. But nowadays in hypermodernity, as you call it, what we might just call kind of the, the digital epoch more generally, you can basically allow all of those uh, fantasies and projections to play out uh, constantly over and over again. But there's never any final reckoning with reality. It's like um, you can just go girl after girl and discard them. You don't ever have to turn your passion into compassion. And therefore, yeah, sure. It can be really exciting and and tons of pleasure and excitement uh, up until, you know, uh, you, or, you know, your, your old age until your body gives out. But then what are you left with? You're left with like nothing. And it's a major, major crisis. This is a major, major problem for people. This is why I like the term hyper modernity, because hyper means fast forward. Everything is 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 hyper now it's like a, cult, a cultural equivalent of a hyperthyroid metabolism you know instead if you wanted to go girl shopping let's say you go to a bar um it, you're you're moving an analog pace face to face but on tinder it's now it's hyper just swipe 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 now your girl shopping uh has accelerated astronomically um it, it, everything in our culture now has done that too much is never enough in hyper modernity it's a culture of excess, of excessive excess. Uh, there's, there's just no limit to it. 
Um, that's why I prefer the term hyper for it. Um, and I think people get that intuitively. Oh yeah, everything is crazy now. With, with We're moving at light speed. When you take a culture based on digital technology, now things, the whole culture has accelerated to the speed of light now. Uh, analog is, you know, snail mail. Uh, now we have Gmail. You know, it's, it's a whole different world when you accelerate to light speed. It changes, as Einstein would be the first to point out, <laughs> you know, when an object goes uh, to the speed of light, which is impossible for a physical object other than a light particle. But if it were, three things happen to that ob object. It collapses, um, time stops, and it gains infinite mass. And so in a way, uh, with the acceleration of our culture to light speed, time has stopped. Everything is instant. Instant this, instant that. Um, why isn't my Amazon product here yesterday? Um, so yeah, this, and that's a breakneck speed for a civilization to go at that we've never experienced as a species before. So it's no wonder uh, that we're having all these kinds of social problems and chaos and mobs. And uh, those are pullbacks. <clears throat> those yeah. are... Uh, those are sort of unconscious pullbacks against this acceleration that people don't quite realize how, just how stressful these new digital technologies are on the human sensorium, which has not been biologically built to live at that speed. The bodies that we're in now are what, uh, two million years old, uh, two, three million years old, and they were evolved on savannas to hunt animals and fight them and fight the other tribe, you know, they weren't meant to go this fast. <laughs> right. So we're having some adaptation problems. Excellent. Excellent. So switching gears a little bit, you have a whole lecture on Jung's views towards alchemy and the psyche. And I think this is very interesting to people because for people who don't know, you know, alchemy played a real role in the development of modern science before we had the protocols that we now think of as scientific method. Alchemy, which today has a kind of negative connotation as uh, just kind of uh, crazy nonsense, alchemy, uh, that was actually the early days of science. The alchemists were the people who were trying to do science before we really figured out what exactly science was. So in, in the historical context, um, alchemy actually is much more interesting and revealing than, than a lot of people might think when you just think of, of the term alchemy, which today... Uh, is kind of seen as uh, a kind of ridiculous uh, archaism. So what was Jung's attitude towards alchemy? Uh, what 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 is the significance of alchemy in thinking about uh, psychology and philosophy? Sure. Uh, the thing was, Jung uh, reached a, a point, about a midpoint in his career, where he was looking for something objective that would ground his ideas so they didn't seem so idiosyncratic. So he figured, if I could find something through history uh, that was basically saying the same thing, but in a different form language, maybe, uh, then I could show that I've hit on something here that's objective, and it's not just my own subjective theories. And so he played around with Gnosticism for a while. Um, that didn't quite fit. Then he stumbled upon alchemy. And as he's reading all these obscure alchemical texts that nobody would bother with nowadays, he finally figured out that there are these three basic stages in the alchemical process, and that actually alchemy had almost nothing to do with trying to make actual gold out of base metals. Those are all metaphors. Ours is not the common gold. It was its model, motto. And uh, so these three phases mapped onto Young's three phases. The individuation process actually has three distinct phases, wherein the first phase is the encounter with what he calls the shadow. And the shadow uh, is always the same sex, and it has to do with your inferior function. If your thinking is differentiated, your shadow figure is going to be feeling, or uh, let's say uh, it, it could be 
uh, intuition that's developed. Maybe you're a poet. Intuition is developed. So your sensation function is not. Chances are you're not going to like jocks because <laughs> you're going to project your inferior function, which is the sensation function, onto people who are have that function as their differentiated function. So that's the shadow. That's the first phase. The second phase then is the animus phase that we've been talking about here. And then the final phase in the individuation process is the encounter with what Jung calls the self with a capital S. Uh, It's the nucleus of the psyche that he thinks gets projected out as the God idea. So then in alchemy, you have these three stages. The first stage was called the negrito, which means the blackening. This corresponds to the encounter with the shadow, the blackening, whereby you take the uh, whatever it is you're using, metals or minerals, you apply heat to them and you melt them down in a crucible. Um, It's a phase of disintegration. The psychological equivalent, let's say, is depression. Uh, It's a phase of disintegration. Um, Then after this process, you've got your stuff melted down into a primordial soup. Now you have to purify it. And the purification is what's known as the albedo, which means the whitening now. And so the whitening phase is normally personified by, uh, if you look at the alchemical illustrations, by uh, the meaning of a man and a woman. Uh, um, and so that corresponds to the anima animus uh, issue. Uh, and then the final stage of alchemy is the rubido or the reddening, um, which is the production of what's called the philosopher's stone, which is the sort of magic thing that you can then use to uh, transform base metals into gold. And the magic stone for him was, of course, the self, the nucleus, the encounter with the God idea at, at the deep core of the psyche. And so that's how he mapped it on. The, that's the simple uh, sort of young for beginners version of his interest in alchemy. Excellent. Excellent rendering of that. Now, so you said something very interesting to me, which is that the early alchemists were not really trying to produce gold in this naive way that we uh, assume today. So tell, could you say a little bit more about that? What were they trying to do? Do you know? Well, no, the whole thing was, a, a, they saw it as a spiritual process. Probably some of them were just playing around with these chemicals. Uh, after all, the, alchemy was Arabian science along with algebra. Algebra and alchemy was uh, the science of the Arabs, and it came up through across North Africa into Spain in the 12th century. And the, all the earliest alchemical texts were translated in the, in the 1100s uh, in Spain, along with the recovery of all kinds of other stuff. Uh, almost the entire corpus of Aristotle, which laid the basis for the creation of universities in Paris and in uh, London. Um, but alchemy, yeah, they were doing a lot of different things. But basically, Young's idea is that they were making projections uh, onto these uh, processes that they were doing in these alembics. Uh, They got very complicated. They were making these kinds of mythological projections. Because if you look at all the images of alchemy, they're all mythological. You can buy a book uh, that's jam-packed with alchemical images, and they're all mythological images. So they were doing these little mythological experiments just in a naive, unconscious way. Interesting. But but our real chemistry did eventually evolve out of this. Uh, And what happened was it got stripped. uh, The physical aspect of it came out of it and was stripped of its esoteric mythological images, which then went in a different direction through all the esoteric societies like the Rosicrucians. Uh, They took over all the mythological imagery, so it split that way. And we've had this underground tradition that Francis Yates writes about in her book, uh, Giordano Bruno and the Hermetic Tradition, uh, which go, funnels right into the Renaissance. Um, and uh, so we, there's this underground mythological tradition in, in the West that's always been a counterplayer 
to the mainstream academic tradition of Descartes and Leibniz and so forth. So there have been these two traditions, but the imagistic mythological tradition of the Rosicrucians and those types of groups, uh, mystics like Jakob Burma and so forth came out of alchemy. Okay, that's extremely fascinating. I think a lot of people in my audience are going to be quite uh, excited by that intriguing idea. So it almost almost sounds like to me that the early alchemists were basically just trying to find general principles uh, or heuristics that apply to many things, right? And that's that's a natural inclination. That's actually, in some ways, that is the scientific aspiration is to just find general principles that apply to as much as possible. That's the generalization uh, instinct that, that essentially underwrites science, but they were doing it so early. They were kind of so visionary and that they didn't really have the tools for doing kind of, you know, uh, properly controlled, uh, scientific experiments, but they're trying to find, uh, basically principles for, uh, for altering both chemicals, but also altering our souls or our, our psychology. It's like, it's kind of like very early applied social science or something. Let me just add in this one footnote really quick that I, that I think is fascinating. What killed alchemy? Would be the natural question. Uh, and alchemy lasted up to about the year 1600. That, that's about the period of its death knell. And the reason for that is because alchemy was based on the ontology of Aristotle, whereby everything is made out of four elements, earth, air, fire, and water. And not only that, but you could transmute one element into another. Um, you could you freeze water, then it becomes a solid. Um, you apply fire to it, you can melt it back into water and so forth. So the idea was that you can, everything in the world is made up out of the four elements in varying degrees of combinations. So if you want to transform things, you just have to know, uh, how to, what to apply fire, water, whatever. Uh, but once the atomist hypothesis was discovered, the, the idea that originated with Democritus, that everything is not made up out of four elements at all, but all these little tiny balls, these little tiny atoms, that are basically, you know, homogenous, and they're the same. Once that theory was discovered in the 17th century by people like uh, Robert Boyle and so forth, that became the new ontology. Everything's made out of atoms. It's not the four elements. Bye-bye alchemy, because the whole thing rested on that, that ontology of the four elements. And that began to introduce materialism slowly uh, into uh, highbrow science. Uh, So that's what killed alchemy, ontological shift. Okay, that's absolutely fascinating. We'll definitely have to unpack that more in in the course. So we have a good question here from Lou and uh, other people who are in the hangout with us. I definitely want to encourage you to ask any other questions you have. We'll get to Lou's question in a second. I think there's just really one more topic that uh, looms large in the course as you've designed it uh, for February, which we haven't talked about yet, which is this concept of synchronicity. Would you mind unpacking for us briefly, uh, John, what, what did Jung mean by synchronicity and why is that important? This was uh, this is from Jung's late period. Uh, I think it's 1951 that he delivered the lecture at the Aronos Conference in Escona, uh, Switzerland. Um, and the idea was synchronicity, and he subtitles uh, the book that he eventually produced, an a-causal connecting principle. So what happens is that um, Jung had studied philosophy, Kant and Schopenhauer and so forth, and he knew, you know, the, the way that we organize the world is based on space, time and causality. Um, the mind brings those structures to experience, but everything has a cause. Uh, the assumption is that any effect that I see must have a cause, and I just have to find the cause. That's the whole scientific method. But synchronicities are a-causal. They don't have causes. And what they are is parallel phenomena that surface within your experience that cannot be explained. They're a-causal, and they disrupt the causal order. So, you know... Probably everyone has them. 
uh, just they just see or see, well, that must be a, a coincidence. Uh, it's not a coincidence. It's there's a deeper for young, a deeper reality. There's not just a collective unconscious, uh, but now he's starting to get into this larger idea that the universe has a kind of psychoid, what he calls a psychoid structure to it, whereby uh, we experience these coincidences uh, that aren't coincidences. You know, I might uh, say something and then, uh, you know, you know, suddenly I get a phone call from someone who says the exact same thing that I was just thinking or writing about. You know, everyone experiences these all the time. And so um, he also thought this might be a key to explaining how astrology works and why it works, why these transits that the planets make seem to do. And they really do. I've researched astrology for a very long time. It really does work uh, exactly the way it says it's supposed to work. So it's a, it's a principle of metaphysical, spiritual connectedness that happens at a deep level. And um, I'm pretty sure everyone's experienced these, whether they're atheist or not, doesn't, doesn't even matter. Okay, interesting. So now we're definitely getting far out, but that's a good thing. I, I like yep. far out. And what, what comes to my mind, I, I, I mean, as someone who's kind of trained as a hard-nosed positivist social scientist and, and someone who really does basically see the world in that way in many ways, what I think is interesting here is that, you know, it's easy if, if you do have this kind of hard-nosed critical rationalist attitude to say, oh, come on, synchronicity, what are you talking about? Astrology, what are you talking about? And, you know, I think you, very interesting kind of uh, questions and underlying meanings to, that, that can be discussed intelligently uh, among all of those topics. But what I think is most striking from a kind of positivist rationalist perspective, like if you even if you are the most kind of scientifically inclined uh, person out there, to me, what I find very interesting in connection to the, what you're saying, John, is simulation theory. I don't know if you read much about this or are very familiar with this, but there mm -hmm. are now, you know, uh, extremely smart, uh, you know, scientific rationalists who take uh, simulation theory pretty seriously now, it, it is not it is not beyond the pale to imagine that we are in fact living in a simulation. And this has this idea has increasing kind of cultural capital and credence, I think, in 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 the most kind of sophisticated philosophical and scientific communities out there. Uh, Nick Bostrom is the one who's most closely associated with this argument. Uh, he makes an argument in, in a famous paper that isn't necessarily, you know, uh, demonstrating that we live in a simulation, but rather that there is a non-trivial possibility that it is perfectly plausible to imagine for a series of complex reasons that we are living in a simulation. There are actually good reasons to believe that. If, and if you're interested in that, you should check out Bostrom's paper. And so while it's not demonstrable that we're living in a simulation, it is not implausible that we're living in a simulation. And this is an argument I find very, very interesting because it opens up some new possibilities for thinking about these much larger abstract uh, kind of spiritual metaphysical questions that a lot of scientific rationalists uh, generally want to kind of dismiss. So for instance, when John talks about, uh, I'm sorry, I'm talking to the audience now referring to you in, in the second person, John, but uh, when when you talk about, John, the, the uh, weird synchronicities that people do often testify to, what my mind goes to is glitches. In, in the simulation, that if we are in fact living in a simulation, just like when you play video games, you know, if you if, if you play uh, Mario Kart, you can you can uh, sometimes kind of run into a corner where you're going really fast in a corner and the screen is getting all jumbled in this weird way, right? And you can find memes and uh, YouTube clips about people actually learn how to hack the glitches in Mario Kart. In other words, computer programs or simulations are often vulnerable to weird glitches, things that are not fully comprehended in the structuring of the code that's supposed to make it work in a certain causal series. There are in the programming of that causal series or that that causal system, that that uh, simulation, there are often weird kind of 
unpredicted mathematical properties that allow certain glitches to happen. Now, people might think this is really crazy or I'm getting really far out there. But like I said, the, some of the smartest, most rationalist people out there today take very seriously the possibility that we're living in a simulation. And if that is the case, then I don't think it's at all crazy to imagine that there could very well be weird, what you're calling synchronicities, John, where things do emerge that are outside of the causal order. I, I think we have good kind of technical analogs for thinking about this. And that, that's just what I wanted to throw that onto the table. I don't know if any of that resonates with you, John. Uh, it does remind me a little bit of the Hindu ontology that the world is Maya, illusion, that everything that appears to our senses is really an illusion that's concealing a deeper reality called Brahman, uh, which is just a primordial cosmic energy. It would correspond to our scientific conception of energy. Basically, it's the same idea. Everything is energy. Everything is Brahman. And uh, what Maya presents to our senses uh, is an illusion. Space and time and causality are not real. Uh, so it does remind me a bit of that, except um, I would say this, maybe it's a simulation in, in that sense. I, I do think that what we're, we see and experience is just a tiny portion of uh, a, a much larger reality, a, a much larger realm that's way bigger than what our uh, animal senses have been evolved to experience. The thing about synchronicities, though, is that they seem to have an intentionality to them. They don't seem to be quite random. They, they seem to... I remember having a dream about 911, for, for instance, a week before it happened. It was exactly seven days. I was on a plane and the, the guy was trying to land the plane in the, in the middle of a bunch of skyscrapers. That was the dream. And then uh, seven days later, 911. Um, a, lot wow. of people, a lot of people also had precognitive dreams of the sinking of the Titanic. There's a guy, uh, a uh, hardcore academic guy um, from a previous generation named Ian Stevenson, who did a collection of, of these uh, people who remembered dreams about the sinking of the Titanic before it happened, some of them dreaming it while it was taking place. So these were parallel uh, synchronicities. Um, and I've had, that's just one precognitive dream I've had. I've, I've had a bunch of them actually, quite, quite a few. Wow. Um, so there does seem to be some form of intentionality to it. That's why I would resist the glitch theory a bit, but okay. we're just yeah. playing around with metaphysics here. That's what's fun about it. <laughs> yeah, that, it's absolutely fascinating. So, all right, great. So th those are huge questions, fascinating, tantalizing questions, which we'll be unpacking over eight weeks in starting in February. So we don't have to do it all here. I think we're coming up on an hour. So I think now would be a good time to take some questions from, from sure. the crowd who's gathered here, to, who signed up to sure. be with us today. Uh, so the first question here is from Lou. And uh, Lou says, hey, John, two-part question here. Lou says, knowing little about Jung, the common objection to him and the archetypes is that, or archetypes, uh, however you prefer, is that they are too platonic. They're too static. Do you think this is true, first of all? And more broadly, what, if anything, do you think Jung leaves out about the, the archetypes? That's, that's a great question, <laughs> because I remember uh, Joseph Campbell asking the same question. They, they do seem like cookie-cutter molds. Uh, and they, and it seems as though uh, they, they're just there, like Plato's ideas, only they're interjected into the psyche, and they're, they're just there. Um, Jung, for instance, thought that the mandala, any quadrated image, was uh, an archetype that the psyche produces, uh, especially when things in your life are chaotic, because it's trying to order your psyche, it's trying to bring order to it. And so Jung noticed that he would get his patients to draw mandalas, uh, make little mandalas, and then it would have a calming effect on them in doing so. So he presumed that the mandala was innate, uh, as we would say in the great philosophical debate between the empiricists and the rationalists, rationalists meaning 
uh, innate ideas. Um, whereas Campbell knew history, I think, way better than Young did. Um, Cam Campbell knew human religious history very well. And he says, you know, it's a, it's a curious thing if the mandala is innate to the psyche, why aren't there any in Paleolithic cave art? There are no mandalas there. And mandalas don't appear actually until the middle of the Neolithic, let's say 6,000 BC in the Middle East, where you start seeing it on the bottoms of pottery vessels. They start drawing these quadrated images, images of things turning in circles, uh, things that are quadrated. And so his idea was that the archetype, it's still an archetype, but he didn't think it was innate to the psyche. Campbell was more of an empiricist about the archetypes. He thinks they emerge historically in response to certain cultural circumstances. At that time, he said that was the period when culture was beginning to specialize. Uh, you could not do everything. You're a blacksmith now. You're a potter. You're a weaver. And the appearance of these mandalas was a way of sort of integrating the society once again into an ordered whole. And so his theory of the archetypes is it's replaying the empiricist rationalist debate that haunt, that dogged philosophy until Kant came along. Um, so yeah, the cookie cutter mold theory is 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 a definite. I, I agree with that that it, it's a little too neat. Um, these things might be messier than that. Okay, great, great answer. Thanks, John. And we have a question here from Nate. The question here is: You mentioned that the by the bifurcation of nature in the 17th century was caused by the dislocation of Aristotelian metaphysics by atomistic materialism. Was Jung trying to unite the psyche with matter in his latter work on synchronicity, synchronicity and quantum theory with Wolfgang Pauli? Yes, I think so. I think that's exactly what he was trying to do. I think he, he realized that there was a disconnect there between his world of the collective unconscious and the physical world. And uh, I think the synchronicity theory was definitely uh, one of his main responses to the challenge set up by this twofold distinction between the psyche on the one hand and the physical world on the other. Um, if you have the psyche and you have the physical world and you have an archetype uh, or a coincidence, a synchronicity that's coming up and manifesting in both realms simultaneously, they may, they, they may appear simultaneously as the term synchronism applies, but they don't have to. <clears throat> there can be a time delay. Um, but nonetheless, it does sound like some, there's another reality underneath that does unite uh, mind and mind. Okay. Okay. Well, those are the two questions we've received so far. If anyone wants to chime in with a, a, another question, we have a little bit of time, I'm sure. John, if you don't have to run, but I think we covered a, a ton of ground. I thought that was uh, really fascinating. And I think, you know, that gives you a bit of a sense of all of the topics that we we're going to spend, you know, eight weeks unpacking. So I think that was that was excellent and and very concise. We covered a lot of ground there. There is a question here now from Sarah. Uh, thanks for the question, Sarah. Sarah asks, how are the archetypes supposed to relate to the divine in you? Uh, they are aspects of the divine. They're like splinters of the divine. Um, there are sort of lower archetypes and higher archetypes. Like the hero would be a, a basic archetype, uh, but the god idea is kind of a higher archetype than that. So you have the god idea and you have the hero archetype, two different archetypes. So yeah, that's a good question. They, they, there may very well be a hierarchy of them, but I sort of see, you know, all the archetypes for Jung have this numinous, let's say spiritually radiant quality to them that uh, is part of the divine world. Okay. Okay. And I mean, what, I'll, I'll just interject here. I mean, what was the divine world to, to Jung? I mean, what, what was his, what was his relationship to religion? I, and you can answer that either biographically or, or philosophically. Like, did he, yeah. did he believe in God? Was that kind of related to his philosophies or what's going on there? No, I don't think he believed in God per se. I think he thinks that God 
the God idea is a projection. Uh, his father was a, a clergyman um, and young, grew up in the countryside. And uh, he said, um, you know, I, I grew up in the countryside. He saw ghosts um, and he said, you know, people in the countryside have a different experience with the supernatural than people who are born and raised in cities who wall that world out. It was like, we experienced all kinds of poltergeist phenomena and ghosts and all kinds. I grew up, you know, with the, the, the spiritual world. And then he says in his autobiography that he watched his poor father losing his faith, slowly wrestling uh, with, you know, belief in God. And it was clear to Young that he was losing his faith. Um, and then he died not too long after, you know, a sort of final crisis where he was just becoming weaker and weak. He was just like, you know, a wilted man. Um, and you can see Young wrestling with theology for a while, but he leaves it behind once he discovers philosophy. And I don't think that he believed in God per se, but he most certainly did believe uh, in, in the spirit world, ghosts and spooks and spirits and, and so forth. Um, even though he doesn't talk about that stuff much in the official writings, but he certainly talks about it in the autobiography. Okay. Okay. Fascinating. Great answer. And we have another question here from Lou who wants to know, John, do you see any kind of Jungian equivalent to the Freudian slip concept? Uh, yeah, the word association experiment is kind of the same thing. Uh, it's, it's like his version of it, uh, writing down words and finding where the complexes are uh, that make you sl have slips of the tongue. I think he's giving a kind of, kind of a causal basis to Freud's slip of the tongue idea. And I think that was that, that was the basis of their whole connection. I, I think Freud recognizing that Jung was independently, separately in uh, Zurich, um, coming across similar phenomena that Freud was experiencing in Vienna, totally independently of each other. But all right. All right. Excellent. Fa absolutely fascinating. I, I can't wait to see the full course develop and the seminar discussions kick off. For those of you, for those of you who joined us here today in uh, the Zoom hangout, thank you for signing up and thank you for coming out. Thanks for the excellent questions. And uh, if you're listening or watching this on on YouTube or on the podcast, uh, if you're on YouTube, make sure you subscribe and click the bell so you learn about all the future events I'll be doing, like this one. And uh, yeah, if you're listening later on the podcast, uh, thanks. And if you didn't catch all of this and you want to listen back to the whole thing, you can just subscribe to the Other Life podcast where I'll be uploading it for you to listen to later on your phone or whatever. So just want to thank everyone for coming out. I want to thank John, especially. This was absolutely awesome. I'm I'm thank you. super intrigued to see the the course lectures uh, be developed by you, John, and to watch the, the the community discussions unfold in the seminar sessions that we'll be doing each week starting in February, but then also in the community forum. Uh, so yeah, I'm super pumped for this. That was excellent, John. Really, really impressive uh, command of of this literature and of these of these ideas that Jung articulated. And uh, yeah, you handle you handle them masterfully and uh, just just absolutely tantalizing. I, I can't wait to learn more about what you're saying here today. So thank you for I coming out, John. Be, I think it'll be a blast. I think we'll, we'll have a lot of fun with, with these talks. And uh, so thank you, Justin, for the privilege of Absolutely. I can't I can't wait to to launch it in February. So just want to thank everyone for coming out. And yeah, I think we'll let's wrap this up and uh, we'll see you all in February. Hopefully, if you want the reading list, you can get that at just otherlifeco, otherlife.co slash Jung, J-U-N-G. Uh, we haven't uh, polished it up yet, but just throw your email on the list 
And very shortly, I will send you the, the syllabus for the course so you can get reading on your, all by yourself. And even if you don't wanna take the course, you might just wanna get the syllabus and do your own self-study on Jung if you'd like. Uh, but John has laid out a series of readings that he thinks will walk you through all of these concepts in, in, a, in a helpful and logical way. So uh, yeah, that's otherlife.co slash Jung, J-U-N-G. All right, everybody, thanks so much. Take it easy and I'll see you back on here for something else soon, I'm sure. Bye everybody. Hey everybody, thanks for listening. If you like this episode, you should send it to a friend. Just email it to them or post it on your social networks, whatever. And to learn more about what we discussed in this podcast or to send me questions to address in future episodes, please just go to otherlife.co and you'll find everything there. There's actually a ton of cool stuff on there, so check it out if you haven't already. Thanks again, folks. I'll see you here next time.